This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 74. I'm your host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with one co-host, well, two sort of co-hosts, but one long-term co-host, Ryan Roberts. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks. Good to be here. And uh, one new co-host... Lisa Humphrey, welcome, Lisa. Hi, nice to be here. Lisa's director of our palliative care and hospice program, and our guest today is Dr. Abby Rosenberg from Seattle Children's Hospital. Welcome, Abby. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So you spent two days with us, which is fantastic. Uh, we appreciate um, your presence here and your grand rounds and seminars today. So you've been talking about a lot of different topics. So I think we'll have a fair amount to talk about today. Let's start though with what your story is, so your background, your history, how did you, where'd you grow up, how'd you get into medicine, what inspired you when you were young? I grew up in California, in Oakland, um, family of two rather politically active young professionals, so we did a lot of conversations in our family about how we could help make an impact on the world, and I don't think I really appreciated how formative that was until... In college, I studied international health and spent a whole lot of time in Africa taking care of kids with HIV. And following that, rather than go to med school, I took a job straight out of college as an underqualified social worker for kids with HIV in New York City. And that was at the time when people really needed social work help managing their illness and all of the other complexities of the medical system in general. And I only lasted about a year in that work before I felt like I was too underqualified to do the impact that I wanted to. Um, Not because um, of burnout. Oh, it was definitely burnout too, but I think part of the burnout was just feeling ineffective in my job and not really knowing if it was the right thing for me. So I took four years of time to think about it, and I went into um, industry doing clinical research at two biotech companies in the Bay Area, where my family had still been living, and then decided I really loved working with the medical oncologists who were running these multi-site clinical trials, and I wanted to be a medical oncologist who did clinical research. So I went back to medical school at Stanford, and... um, while I was there, had a baby and decided, no, pediatric oncology is definitely a better way to live my life. So I switched gears, did my pediatric residency and fellowship in Seattle. And while I was there, I think all of this stuff kind of came back to me, this sort of what am I doing and what's, where could I be most impactful? And the questions that I kept coming up to as a resident and then fellow were really about how we take care of teenagers with advanced cancer, how we talk to them, how can we recognize and build the capacity to be resilient in the patients and families that we work with. Um, you know, those, you know, those, when you meet a new family and you have this sort of moment where you're like, oh, you guys are going to do okay, or oh, you guys are going to do badly. And sometimes we're right with that guess, and sometimes we're totally wrong. (laughs) So I wanted to figure out how we could better inoculate people regardless of what our guesses were about how they would do and see if we could help them deal with the illness experience in a way that would enable us to take better care of the kid. 
That's a pretty big challenge, pretty big undertaking. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, you've been pretty successful, though, at developing a lot of strategies around that concept and themes and knowing the literature, at least from based on all the things that you presented. So um, how have you found it, is it possible to inoculate people? And um, Well, I think it's possible to a degree, and we don't know fully yet because we haven't been doing this long enough to really understand to what degree. Um, the way we tried to answer the question was by pulling from psychology and social sciences and anthropology as well as what we do in medicine. And um, we worked with patients and families for many years to try to understand the processes from their words and um, the experiences to translate and create this inoculation type of intervention. Um, and what we... Not quite as easy as a vaccine. No, well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's easier, maybe not. But the um, idea that we came up with was really that if you look at how people overcome adversity in any culture and in any scenario around the world, they tend to rely on a set of resources in one of the following categories. So either it's you know, who you are as an individual, your individual resilience resources, as we call them, um, and that's your personality, your grit, your skills that you learn from prior adversities. The second is kind of a community-based resilience resource. This is who are your people, who helps you, who supports you. And the third is what we call existential resilience resources, and that's something like faith or spirituality or meaning-making and purpose legacy building after adversity. And we then worked with teens and young adults and parents, and we said, what do you think about these ideas, and how could we develop them, and um, created this skills-based intervention where we teach teens four sets of skills, and we, quote, inoculate them when they're diagnosed with cancer, and we found in a randomized trial that when we teach them stress management, goal-setting, cognitive restructuring, and um, meaning-making skills in a very short skills-based intervention. They seem, over time, to have better quality of life and lower psychological distress and more hopeful patterns of thought moving through their cancer experience. And so all of those things suggest there may be some benefit from this inoculation, but what we don't know is for whom do the patients work specifically and can we risk stratify and there are still going to be people who need higher levels of support where the inoculation doesn't work. And so the next big questions for us is how do you integrate this into a stepped care model at the bedside where maybe you teach these people these skills at the, base, at the beginning, but you still need to provide some additional services for them uh, downstream, and how do you recognize when and how to do that? Well, and it's not just the patient, too. It's the whole family that Absolutely. is stressed out, right? And, right. Uh, that has to deal with the different uh, skill levels of resilience and have their own probably um, surround sound of help. <laughs> so are you also working with the families themselves? or? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, when we started, we had this debate, who do you start with, the kids or the parents? Because we know that distressed parents have a harder time taking care of their kids and then the kids become more distressed. Um, and so after we developed the intervention with the teens and young adults, we heard from all the parents, yeah, why didn't you do this for us too? And we said, okay, well, we can try it with you. And we adapted the same skills, changed the language a little bit for adults instead of teenagers, and are now running a trial testing it in parents. And, and what we're doing differently in parents is, whereas a lot of our teens and young adults with cancer can't participate in, for example, a group-based intervention because they're in isolation or they're at different phases of their treatment. What we had heard from parents is that they really wanted to meet each other. 
And so the trial in parents is actually randomizing um, participants to either this one-on-one -on -one at the bedside private intervention versus a group-based intervention versus our usual psychosocial care. And we have probably 10 more people to enroll in that study today. And then we'll have three to six months of data collection to see what happens. And then at the end of it all, we'll be able to compare the one-on-one -on -one to usual care, the group to usual care, and the one-on-one -on -one and group side-by-side -side to see is one more effective than the other, and does one promote social support where one promotes individual resilience? Like, we'll, ha we'll, we'll be able to look at all of that. And the result of that will really be to design a family-based intervention so that we can support everyone in the room. Are the interventions that you're teaching the, the, the patients and the families things that you your team designed or is something you imported from somewhere else? It's a little of both. So when we designed the intervention, we pulled from other evidence-based interventions that have been used in other illness populations. So the most of them have come from women with breast cancer. And so we sort of tried to figure out what are the underpinnings of those successful interventions and where are they relevant in pediatrics. Um, and then we iteratively designed it with patients and families based on the theories and principles. And so the the first couple of studies we did was we would create these little scripts and we would work with one patient, do the thing, give us your feedback, what do you think, how should we tweak it, then we do the next one. And we kept doing that until subsequent patients didn't want to change anything and then we'd do a group of five and if five got through it and didn't want to change it, we would extend that to ten until we felt like we had it successively right in a way that patients and families really valued and could participate. It's a lot of trial and error. It was a ton of trial How and error. How long did that take? <laughs> Years. <laughs> is this all work that you've done just up in Seattle, or is this stuff that you've done across multiple institutions so with other this, collaborators? The, the resilience intervention, which we call Promoting Resilience and Stress mm -hmm. Management, or PRISM, has all been in Seattle to date. And we just now are about to launch some multi-site trials, because it's... The, the question that you're not asking, which I wonder if you're thinking, is, well, so great, it's lovely in Seattle where you guys <laughs> created this, but who knows if it'll work or if it's even feasible well, elsewhere. We're in Ohio. <laughs> well, so, but we're going to ask, uh, maybe not in Ohio quite yet, but someday I would love to do it here, but we will ask it in, in a couple other places and see if it's um, disseminatable to other centers. And how will families or patients um, know what the results are? Are you going to present this at meetings or... Yeah, so we'll definitely present the results of each of these trials at meetings, and we have a process in all of our projects where within their consent forms, people can check a box, yes or no, I want to hear the results, and at the end of the study, we write a little summary sheet, and once we've published the primary analyses, we send a little non-jargony synopsis of the main findings to patients and families with a thank you. It also seems to me this is something that we could all use because life is stressful. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, everyone has problems and issues and, and could use some more resilience. Is that anything you think is exportable to other, not just yeah, patients with cancer Yeah, it's such a good question, illness? Tim. Um, someday, I think the resilience resources, as I said at the beginning, they tend to be pretty universal, although people may or may not know what they're doing when they are being resilient or what they are lacking when they're feeling less resilient. At this point, I think there is such a need for kids with serious illness that we really want to focus on that population and provide a service for people at that moment where they are really stressed because of the illness. And someday maybe we'll be able to export it to a larger population. 
I worry about diluting PRISM too much right now and then missing an opportunity to really create the best thing that we can for our patients and families who I think all of us agree really have a particular need. So hard to know right now what we'll do with it in the long run. Thinking about Lisa being here, how does this tie in with your role in sort of palliative care? Looking at you, Lisa, mm-hmm. you, can, you can jump in and, and speak so people get less tired of hearing my voice. But I will say, um, you know, the overarching objectives of palliative care are to alleviate patient suffering and improve their quality of life. And PRISM does that. We know that it alleviates their psychological distress and it improves their quality of life using validated instruments. And I think the reason that we consider it an early palliative care intervention is because it is designed with this kind of holistic approach to say, not only is your medical management and all of the cancer information really important, but so too is all of the rest of it that comes with the stress or the serious illness. And we want to create this way of supporting all of those needs all at once from the time we meet you. I like it. I like it a lot. So Lisa, you approve? Um, we don't have anything like that here, or do we? Are we f- meeting this need in some way? I think we use our training in palliative and do our best, and um, we use our psychosocial resources, but you know, this is the type of work that needs to be done in a systematic way in order to improve palliative and improve um, resiliency for our patients. And are psychologists and social workers not well-trained in this aspect of care? I um, am a little hesitant to speak on behalf of my psychology colleagues, but I would say in general, I think they, they receive a reasonable amount of training in the concepts of resiliency, and there's a reasonable amount of work in talking about it in stressful socioeconomic status situations and talking about also um, who w- most of us know the primary personality characteristics that would make someone more resilient than someone else. But again, going back to this idea of a systematic bedside approach to promote or inoculate, I think really is moving the field of psychosocial medicine and palliative forward. Yeah, I mean, I think social workers and and psychologists do this stuff. Mm -hmm. They, you know, this is in their wheelhouse and Mm they... um, well, certainly it's interesting. We've had some conversations with our psychosocial team in Seattle, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I do the same thing when I'm called. The What PRISM does that's different is, as Lisa said, it's sort of more upstream. So it's this inoculation as opposed to waiting for somebody to be in crisis. And then we oncologists say, oh, no, it's time for a psychology referral. And the idea here is that perhaps we could save those professionals for the people who really need professional-level services. And and PRISM is not designed to take over the jobs of social workers or psychologists, nor will it ever replace the services that they can provide for people who need that professional-level support. What it's designed to do is really try to minimize the number of people that escalate to that and to improve the sense of an individual or a family to know that they can navigate this with some particular skills to be drawn upon when needed. So it could actually be a reduction in healthcare expenses. Uh, that would be more, awesome. Yeah, and yeah. a better, more improved care, so it would have the benefit of both. Right. Interesting. So I have a question based on that. So. Yeah. You mentioned kind of at the beginning that um, some elements of resiliency are met at an individual level while other elements are met at like a family level. Mm-hmm. So how, mu- how much of that? So if I think of my own children, right? And if I were to put each of them in a, in a really stressful situation like that, they would react very, very differently. 
um, yet they all come from the same family, right? Mm -hmm. So how much of the differences that we see come from individual personalities and whatnot, and how much of that comes from families and situations? Do we know that? I don't think I, I wouldn't be able to quantify it, um, like what percentage comes mm -hmm. from what for, for different people. We do know that there are individual level differences, as you have observed with your own mm -hmm. kids. And, and what PRISM does is it gives people this skill set. And you could draw from one of the four, and I could draw from the, thir the three of the four. But each of us is at least aware that these are resources that have helped other mm -hmm. kids like us in this similar yeah. situation. What PRISM does not do in its current form, is provide the community support. So we deliberately, when we were designing it, realized we can't create like a social support or a community-based thing for a group of teens and help them develop their individual and existential resources. That just felt too disparate mm -hmm. at, in, in the design of what we would do at the bedside. So it's focusing on what so can they themselves do for themselves. what was in their immediate control. And I think... You know, that is a gap, and at some point we want to try to figure out how best to help them build their community resources. The thing that's really interesting about adolescents and young adults or AYA oncology patients is, at least on a broad scale, the evidence suggests that when you're a teen, like a high school-aged person, you don't want to be identified as a patient with cancer. Mm -hmm. You actually reject that identity. You really want to be a normal again, and you want to maintain your peer circle of your, of your friends in high school. And in contrast, the college-age AYAs really want to meet other people with cancer who can relate to them. And at some point along that developmental spectrum, depending on the timing of your diagnosis, people start making that shift. But if you think about designing a community-based intervention for adolescents mm -hmm. and young adults at large, that means that the 14, 15-year-old is going to want something fundamentally different than the 21, 22-year-old. And so how you do that on a programmatic level becomes pretty complicated. And so I think that's another big thing for us to figure out. I, I wonder, too, um, you talk about doing this very much upstream, which is a great idea. Is there any anything in your research suggesting that you're going to have to stratify if the disease progresses? Like, is there going to need to be a boost of the inoculation or a completely <laughs> different inoculation? Boost. Yeah, well, I think it's a boost. I mean, I th like, the vision would be... So now your cancer has come back, and it's incredibly stressful and in some ways more devastating because people understand what that really implies, not only for their immediate quality of life and experience, but also for their longer-term survival potential. The hardest conversation is always relapse. Right? So, yeah. but, but so the vision could be which skills worked for you before? We're going to re-inoculate you. We're going to bring those back up because they are functional adaptive skills. Now, now I, I want to be clear. Like This isn't the silver bullet magical answer for everybody, and mm -hmm. there are going to be some people who need additional level resources and new skills. But if they have learned that they helped them in the past, then what we could do is continue to remind them that these are the skills that work. Where I think there's an additional opportunity, and we're working on this now, is like, so you don't want... You learned it, and then a year goes by, and you've never needed the skills, and all of a sudden you need them again, because we all know that when you don't practice skills, they get rusty. And so one of the things we're trying to think about is how do you boost, but in a way that just helps people maintain some of these new skill sets. So for example, one of the things that is, I think, the easiest in PRISM is either some simple relaxation, deep breathing, stress management techniques that you can take, you know, 10 seconds per day to just calm your mind or one where they keep a little gratitude journal. So once a day, what good thing happened to you? 
And we know from psychology literatures that either of those two practices is associated with better psychological health on a sort of steady stream level. And so if you could say, just maintain your gratitude practice a couple times a week even, then when the really hard thing comes up, you can say, what have you been doing? And it's less new learning all over Mm -hmm. again and more just kind of capitalizing on the skills you already have. And how are you using digital technology or wearable technology in this program? Yeah, yeah. So that's we're just starting to do that. Um, we had this amazing opportunity probably just about a year ago now where the digital health team at Seattle Children's um, and we partnered to create an app from PRISM. And so they introduced us with two philanthropic tech companies in Seattle. One is called Artifact, and they did the design. And the other is called General UI. They did all of our programming and engineering. And we spent all last summer with these guys at their fancy Seattle suite downtown on the waterfront. And it was very pretty and very weird for me to be working with them. Um, and they helped us translate what we do at the bedside to a digital e-health app. And so now all of the skills that we teach at the bedside are embedded in this mobile app in this just beautiful platform. And then um, what we plan to do now, we're beta testing it at Seattle Children's and roughly 100 adolescents and young adults just to get data about stickiness and user feedback again in this kind of iterative what should we do different design um, plan. And then after that, it will be a complement to what we do at the bedside. I um, I am skeptical that it would ever be a replacement for the human touch, in particular because I think that social connection and an adult teaching a kid that this is important is really powerful for our patients. Um, but also because I don't think teens would do it if they didn't have some sort of reinforcement that this is a strategy that will help for them. They could play with the app, but they won't really... I think, develop the skills on their own without somebody asking them to or showing them the program by itself. I guess, is there a risk if you release the app that people will try to download it lots of places around the country or, or will and try to use it and it will be sort of a false uh, yeah. use of it in a way? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, the risk, the worry that I would have is that, again, it would dilute the product and we wouldn't really be able to assess if it's correct yet. And so as an investigator, I... I that makes me nervous. And, and so right now we control who has it. We give them a download code and we can uh-huh. really use those data within our studies. And so like in the future trials that we're doing on this multi-site trial, we'll be able to know which skills they practice and how long they spend on each page. And that'll help us understand the dose effect and what we're seeing over time with their improved resilience perspectives. So you've probably alluded to several of these things, but we should point out that you were recently recognized with a couple of grants to be able to do some of this work. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what those grants <laughs> yeah. are about? Yeah, so I've had what you're the, gonna be doing? the craziest year um, where we got our first um, NIH R01 from the National Cancer Institute um, actually s- officially starting tomorrow <laughs> or whatever April 1st day is <laughs> on April Fool's Day. <laughs> you've got work to do. beginning, <laughs> I know. And so that study is getting some of the stuff you guys had talked about. It's um, testing PRISM's efficacy in teens and young adults who are receiving hematopoietic stem cell transplants. More innovative and interesting aims of that grant are looking at cost effectiveness. So can we actually demonstrate with formal health economy models that we are minimizing downstream health costs and that this is a 
value-added thing for programs to do. And then we are also looking at PRISM's association with adherence to oral GVHD prophylaxis. So are we changing health behaviors by helping people to feel more empowered and self-efficacious? So that's the first project. And then two weeks ago, we got a notice from the NIH that our second R01 is going to be funded. And that... Pretty um, awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. It's like crazy pants. Um, Anyway, so that grant is taking PRISM and adapting it specifically for that moment when your cancer comes back and using it in that particular advanced cancer population. And what I love about that study is we... We tested a PRISM in advanced cancer in our phase two trial, and we know that we can do it in that patient population, and we know that they still value it. We didn't have power in that study to look at the impact in the advanced cancer population. So in this new study, we'll be able to see that. Is it still as effective in kids with advanced cancer as it was with new cancer? But what's more exciting to me is, as you guys know, Adolescents and young adults with cancer almost never participate in advanced care planning conversation. We do this very rarely, and almost never do they have a formal advanced care planning document. And then the degree with which they participate in the conversations about goals of care and whatever they want with respect to their prognosis and future treatment is is pretty inconsistent depending on the kid and the family. And so what we're doing in this new advanced cancer trial is we have modified PRISM again in the same iterative way that we do, and we are going to add Voicing My Choices, which is an adolescent and young adult approved legal advanced care document. And so we're adding modules of that to a fifth PRISM session. So we still do all the same four, stress management, goal setting, um, cognitive reframing, and meaning making. And then we say, now we're going to apply those skills that you just used, and we're going to talk about what matters to you since your cancer's back, and we know this is really hard. And so we've picked just a few pages of that instrument to start the advanced care planning conversation with these teens. We've trained our interventionist staff to be able to deliver it, and so now we'll be able to test really the feasibility of adding in this early advanced care planning, and then also does that affect downstream conversations Mm -hmm. with our palliative care colleagues when they're starting to have conversations formally about advanced care planning and the child's or adolescents and young adults' wishes. And that project, like... I just, I well, I love them Amazing. both. But that one I, I'm really excited about because I feel like this is another void in how we take care of these young people. Mm-hmm. So is that care planning, is that baked into a digital So that will not tool? be in the app. Okay. That part will be, we, we want to use the legally, mm-hmm. um, the legally valid document. And so we, um, the people who developed it are at the agingwithdignity.org. They mm-hmm. are the same people who do five wishes. Um, yeah. And they are just the loveliest, and they were like, whatever you guys can do to help make sure that teens and families are getting this and using it, because we know that it's really valuable. So they, like, handed us 200 packets and just said, you know, go out and use this however you guys feel like is interesting. So we partnered with them and Lori Wiener, who was the developer of it, to figure out how to integrate it into this PRISM trial. And for full disclosure, that those conversations are still ongoing because mm-hmm. that trial probably wouldn't launch for six more months. So we're just sort of figuring out what it'll look like. Well, it's fantastic, and uh, you know we all know, and we've had podcasts about the uh, lower survival rates in ch- in adolescent young adults, and how much is it due to the different protocols and adult center versus kid center, or the different biology? But certainly, this may be a big part of it too—an unmet need in this patient population, yeah. uh, their resilience, and how to increase that. So 
um, it's terrific that you're doing this, and we really appreciate Thanks. you sharing your experience with us and spending some time with us in Columbus. Last question, at least for me, if we started the conversation with you sort of telling us your circuitous route <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to get this. So do you have any advice for people in med school or residency or looking at their future career and from, <laughs> from your experience and journey? Um, well, I de- as you said, it's been very circuitous. There, there. In retrospect, I understand how I've gotten where I am now. It almost is like it was meant to be, right? I, using you know, all these prior I skills. I do use a lot of these prior life experiences, but I think that's the message is, um, one, follow your joy. I mean, I really was deliberate in all of these decisions that I made about what I wanted to be doing and how I thought I could be most impactful in the world. And then I was really willing to pause and think about things and try to figure them out for myself. And I think it's so hard when you're a medical student and then resident fellow and like things just pile on top of each other and there's this life course charted out for people. But I, I, I think we all have different roles to play and I'm so grateful that I've found one that I think is really fulfilling. And I just, I hope people will do that same thought exercise of figuring out what they want to do and what their story will be and then being deliberate about how they try to tell it. Did you have any thought at the time that, oh, I'm I'm beyond going to med school? I mean, I'm too far along in my life and or was that daunting at all? To it was super daunting to, to go back, especially, you know, I had to take the MCAT again and like it was just totally Study painful. chemistry. Yeah. Yes. Um, relearning chemistry and physics was not fun. But I, at that point, really had this ambition. And, and again, you know, I wanted to be a medical oncologist running basic science clinical trials, not at all what I ended up doing. And had you told me at the time that I would be doing this, I would have not believed you. So you never know where life will take you. I think at each point and at each crossroads, you've got to make the decision that you think is right. Um, so medical school was always, that, that felt okay to me because I had this goal and turns out, for the wrong reasons. <laughs> For the wrong reasons, but that's okay. You know, it's again, life kind of works out sometimes in those weird ways. You're willing to ride the yeah, wave. Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks thank for you, having Ryan, me. for co-hosting as usual. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us. Uh, Look forward to seeing you again. <laughs> any of our, if our listeners have a uh, question they would like to ask us, or I'd be happy to pass a note on to Abby, you can email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. Uh, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donald Edwinski, our executive producer. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. <laughs>